So then let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambuddhasa Tonight I'm going to talk about anatta or non-self, the impersonal nature of all phenomena. In my last talk, Monday, and the previous week, in one talk, or two talks, I have talked about anicca and dukkha, the first two of the general characteristics. So, explaining impermanence, change, and the unsatisfactory suffering nature of uh, phenomena. And as we have seen, impermanence and unsatisfactoriness are concepts or names given to certain experiences. So then we looked at how do we actually experience this impermanence? What is the actual experience by which we come to understand the impermanent nature of phenomena and we have done the same thing in regard to unsatisfactoriness or dukkha and so we have seen that with anicca the impermanent nature it's to see the constant arising and passing away or the change or the non-existence after having arisen and this has to be experienced in regard to the specific characteristics of phenomena. And with dukkha, this means to see that this constant arising and passing away of phenomena is actually oppressing, it's not satisfying, seeing it as a torture and seeing it as unable to provide a basis for lasting happiness and peace. And so today, so today to make this uh, tri trilogy uh, complete, we'll look at anatta, non-self. Again, how do we actually experience this non-self nature of phenomena? What is the actual experience by which we can come to understand that all phenomena are anatta or non-self? So it is said that the characteristic of non-self is the mode of being insusceptible to the exercise of mastery, which means the fact that one cannot exercise complete control over this phenomena of mind and matter. Or another definition of anatta, non-self, is mental and physical phenomena are void of any inherently existing entities. And so the understanding of this uh, non-self nature of phenomena, the understanding of anatta, non-self, comes about by observing the specific or individual characteristics of mental and physical phenomena and seeing 
that they are unimmanable to the exercise of control or seeing that these specific characteristics heat or movement also and so on that they are phenomena happening on their own accord so seeing that these are merely natural phenomena happening uh, according to their inherent laws so when we talk of anatta this is opposed to atta because at the time of the Buddha uh, people believed in an atta and so the Buddha's teaching was that there is no such a thing as atta but that things uh, phenomena are actually anatta and so what people referred to as atta was that there is a self or a soul in a person or that the phenomenon is endowed with an inherently existing uh, entity which then is called atta or self and then people thought that this self, this atta is either the master over phenomena or this self is the doer it's the self that does things, that acts with bodily actions, speaks with verbal uh, actions and that thinks or it was thought that this atta this self is the feeler that which feels what is happening in body and mind or this atta, this self was considered to be the director that uh, director who has everything uh, under control directs everything according to his her wishes or another way to see Atta was that this Atta, the self, was a controller that entity which had this absolute control over phenomena and so where can this self to be found? The Buddha looked very carefully into his body, into his mind, in all existing phenomena and he came to the conclusion that the so-called Atta or Self could not be found in the five aggregates. He couldn't find the Atta inside these five aggregates nor could he find this Atta outside these five aggregates nor could he find it somehow related to these five aggregates so he came to understand that this thing called Atta was merely a concept or an idea of ordinary people uh, who are not yet free from wrong view and so the Buddha saw clearly that this self, this Atta was only imposed on this naturally happening phenomena so when we look at these five aggregates we can investigate and go through each of these aggregates and see if we could find any other and so in regard to the aggregate of form or materiality we can have a look at our body which is materiality and one way to do it is in regard to the 32 parts of the body and so then ask ourselves is any of these 32 parts the self or endowed with the self so as you might know these 32 parts start the hair of the 
head, the hair of the body. So if you look at the hair of the head, do you think yourself is in the hair of the head? Well, very often you cut your hair and I don't think you consider your hair uh, the, the seat of the self or in that is the self. So that one is not probably conclude. Um, urine and feces are also parts of these 32 parts of the body. And if we look at our feces, do we think that's ourselves? <laughs> do we think this disgusting and smelly thing that we actually uh, dispose of is ourselves? Most likely not. But then there are other parts in the body that we are not so sure about. For example, the heart as one of these 32 parts. So is the heart ourself or is the heart the seat of ourself? Maybe here it's not so clear. <laughs> People might uh, think, yes, the heart, that's really my core, that's where myself, the me, uh, resides. But the Buddha clearly saw that even the heart is not the self or it's not the seat where the self resides. The same can be done in regard to the aggregate of feeling, Vedana. And we know there are three kinds of feeling, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neutral feelings. And so, which one of these three kinds of feelings do you consider the self? The unpleasant feelings? Most likely not. The pleasant feelings? Would be nice <laughs> if that would be ourselves, just the pleasant feelings. Another question we can ask, if the self was the feeling or residing in the feeling or having control over the feeling, then why would the self allow unpleasant feelings to arise? And we must remember, the self is considered something that has control or can direct things. And so if the self had any control, I think very quickly one would use this control to abandon unpleasant feelings or not to permit them to arise. But as we know from our experience, we don't have this control. And so, in the same way, one can go through the other aggregates as well. So therefore, the Buddha came to the conclusion that all of these five aggregates are anatta, are non-self. That means they don't possess a self. And as I just said, they don't possess a self because if there was a self then uh, that would mean this self, this atta, had control over these aggregates. And very obviously there is no such a thing as this absolute control over these aggregates. Because if there was this control then at our will we could create any feeling or any emotion that we wanted. So if we wanted to have a happy feeling right now on the spot, we could produce it. And also with having this control, any unpleasant feeling or emotion, we could immediately get rid of. We don't want it, okay, we give it the order to go away or we even uh, exercise that much control that no unpleasant emotion or feeling can arise. But very obviously, we don't have this control. 
when we observe what is happening in our body and mind, observing all mental and physical processes, then after some time we come to see that whatever arises in the body and mind somehow happens uh, on its own accord. It, these um, processes, they happen on their own accord, according to their own causes and conditions. And so, in this way, we cannot find any atta or self that is a controller or can exercise any control over these different phenomena. In our meditation practice, we can experience this in uh, different ways. So, for example, in the walking meditation, when we observe the movement of the feet and when we are also able to note the intentions that precede these movements. So then, with good mindfulness and deep concentration, it becomes very obvious that it's the intention that causes the movements to happen. So the intention to lift makes the foot lift. The intention to push the foot forward then causes this forward movement. And the intention to drop the foot then causes the foot to be dropped. And observing this processes in this way, then meditators can feel as if it is walking by itself. There is no more person, no more me, I, that is walking, but somehow it feels like being walked. Or sometimes meditators uh, relate that it feels like a robot. It's not them anymore, but somehow just a natural process happening by itself. Or sometimes meditators feel as if being a marionette, like something or somebody is kind of pulling these invisible strings, like a string attached to the foot and whoops, the foot is lifted and there's an intention to push and then whoops, the foot is pushed forward and so on. So, in this way, meditators experience this walking as an impersonal process. There is no more person, no more me, no more I that is walking, but walking is just happening. And it becomes very obvious that the intentions uh, cause the movements to happen. And so this is uh, seen and understood as natural processes happening on their own accord. Another ex experience can happen in the sitting meditation when mindfulness on any given object becomes quite sharp and penetrating and the mind is quite concentrated. Then all the mind knows is let's say, some sensations of tingling arising and passing away uh, one after the other. And by that time, the meditator loses the form of the body, or there's no more notion of somebody, a body sitting there. But it seems like these tingling sensations are happening in space, in empty space just these tingling sensations coming up and going one after the other and the mind that is aware of that. And so it feels like quite an empty feeling or the body is kind of hollow, empty. And because very often the body is identified with the self or the seat of a self. So having no more notion of a body 
then also this identification of the self being in the body or connected to the body falls away and so then it becomes again quite an impersonal process just this tingling sensation and something that is aware of it so in this way anatta uh, non-self can be experienced in this way or yet another way to experience it is for example in uh, the awareness of daily activities let's say somebody has taken uh, or made a cup of tea and then is carrying this cup of tea to the table and being very focused on holding this cup of tea wanting not to spill the hot tea so then the focus is just on that holding the cup some touching sensations maybe some hardness maybe some warmth or heat and as one is walking towards the table as the focus is so completely on holding the cup feeling the touching sensations then it seems like this cup of tea is moving or going by itself to the table the notion of me, I, walking to the table is just completely lost there is nobody who is walking to the table uh, all one knows is this cup of tea is moving towards the table so it becomes a very impersonal process sometimes this non-self nature of phenomena is also explained as emptiness and for this the Pali word is sunyata but with this term one has to be a bit careful because it's not empty in the ordinary sense as we understand it as for example an empty cup or an empty glass like if all the water is poured out of a glass then it's empty so nothing remains nothing isn't there any longer and so with that then people get the notion that emptiness means nothing or nothingness kind of an annihilation but emptiness then uh, refers to the empty of an inherent existing entity like empty of being endowed with an atta or self you could also say uh, void of an self void of an ego or me as we have seen before the understanding of anicca impermanence leads to the understanding of unsatisfactoriness dukkha like because things are changing all the time because things are arising and passing away so this constant arising and disappearing of phenomena is unsatisfactory cannot be the basis for lasting happiness and from the understanding of dukkha unsatisfactoriness one can come to the understanding of non-self or anatta because what is impermanent and unsatisfactory how can this be atta or self to understand non-self seems to be a bit more difficult than to understand impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and this is due to the fact that uh, certain concepts or ideas uh, prevent the understanding of non-self and 
these are the concepts of compactness in regard to continuity of things, in regard to mass, in regard to the function of things, and in regard to the objects. And so now I'm going to uh, talk about these four kinds of deceiving concepts that we have about uh, or in, in regard to phenomena. So first, uh, in general, the concept of compactness, a concept that uh, takes things to be compact. If one does not uh, carefully observe phenomena happening in body and mind, then one does not see that these different phenomena are different in regard to their characteristics, they are different in regard to their functions, they are different of different types. So if one does not look carefully at these objects, then one thinks that they are just um, one single entity. So for example, at the moment of seeing. For seeing to happen, there is an intention to see, and then there is the seeing consciousness, and often there is a thought about what has been seen. And so, ordinary people, they take these different things, these different aspects of an experience, as a single and a compact entity. Or another example, if one observes the stretching out of an arm, then there is an intention to stretch, then there is the stretching movement itself, and there is also the awareness uh, of that stretching movement. And if this experience is not carefully uh, observed, then one just takes this all to be one compact entity. And so this concept of compactness, this conceals or hides the characteristic of non-self, of anatta, because then impo it imp imposes the concept of um, compactness uh, on the experience, thinking that this whole experience is just one compact mass. But when in our meditation practice we very carefully observe these uh, processes in the body and mind, then it becomes clear that these different processes are actually different, different in regard to their characteristics, different in regard to their functions, different in regard to their manifestations, and so on. And we come to see that an experience consists of different uh, uh, entities. So for example, at the moment of seeing, let's say, a Buddha statue, then there is the intention to see this Buddha statue, then the seeing consciousness, and the thought about what we see. And so with awareness, these different aspects to this experience become very clear as separate or single entities. They are not the same. So one very clearly sees that the intention to look at the Buddha statue arises and immediately passes away. And then uh, the seeing takes place and while seeing there might arise a thought of, oh, what a beautiful Buddha statue. 
And so it's very clearly seen as uh, different happenings. It's not um, part of one and the same uh, experience. Or the experience of stretching out the arm. Again, first of all, there's the intention to stretch out the arm. And with sharp mindfulness, one can be aware of that very short, uh, like flash in the mind, this intention that comes up and immediately disappears. And when the intention uh, has disappeared, then the actual stretching movement uh, begins. And so when the stretching movement is happening, then at that time the mind can be aware that this movement is happening. And so also here, it becomes very clear that uh, there are different processes involved in this act of stretching out the arm and that these different processes are clearly separate and different from each other. And so, seeing things in this way, then the concept of compactness is broken. So, things, experiences are no longer perceived as a compact uh, thing or entity. So, in regard to this concept of compactness, um, there are four types of how this uh, is perceived and how these four types of wrong concepts conceal the characteristic of non-self. So there is this concept uh, in regard to continuity like a compactness in regard to continuity. Then one concept is associated with the mass of phenomena and this is called the compactness of mass. The third one is associated with the function of uh, phenomena and so this, this one is called the compactness of function. And the last one is associated with the objects of phenomena. And so this one is called the compactness of objects. So now let's go to the first of these uh, uh, wrong concepts, the compactness of continuity. So, this concept refers to the compactness that is based on the continuity of phenomena, taking phenomena processes uh, to be continuous. So, just uh, to go back to, the, to this example of seeing an object, so if one does not see the seeing process as composed of the intention to see, the seeing itself and uh, a thought of what has been seen, then all these phenomena are taken to be as a single entity. And it's the continuity of this um, experience that conceals that things are actually uh, not continuous. And so because we think it's a continuous uh, process happening, then one wrongly assumes that there is a self involved in this process, that the self is uh, seeing it, that it is the self which is aware of all that. And in the same way things happen when we 
hear something, when we smell something, when we taste something, when we touch something, or when we think something. So if we don't look carefully at these processes of seeing, hearing, etc., then it becomes not apparent that, for example, the desire uh, to see is different from the actual uh, seeing. So then it becomes not apparent that these are different entities, different processes. And so when we think in terms of these processes are being continuous, so then this concept of continuity conceals the fact that things are ha actually happening uh, very momentary. And we only can to see this momentariness of things happening during our meditation practice when we look more carefully. Because only when we really take the time to observe this phenomenon over an extended period of time come we clearly to see that things are happening momentarily. Things are arising and passing away. They are fleeting. And so with that, this idea of continuity is broken. So it's through our uh, meditation practice that the concept of continuity can be broken because then we come to see that the desire to look is one thing and the looking uh, process or looking consciousness is something completely different. And when we see these processes in this momentary way, when we see that different processes are involved in an act of seeing, for example, then with this continuity uh, broken, we also come to see that these are just natural phenomena taking place, like seeing the intention to look is the cause, and then the looking, seeing uh, is the effect. So there is no self involved in this uh, process. Well, it can happen without a self. It's just natural processes. They happen because the necessary causes and conditions are present. And so we also see that the desire to see cannot actually do the seeing. The desire to see is just a desire, it's just an intention. And this has already uh, fallen away when we actually see. Or the intention to stretch the arm cannot uh, accomplish the stretching movement. The intention to stretch the arm is a momentary flash in the mind, but then it's gone, and then the stretching movement is a new process, something else. But there's a causal relationship between these two processes, the intention, the cause, and the actual movement, the effect. So, again, this makes clear, it's not the self that is causing these things to happen, but it's just these natural causes and conditions which are there. And the intention is not the self, the movement is not the self. Both of them are devoid of an atta or a self. 
Then the second of these concepts is the compactness of mass. This means that one thinks that phenomena are just a compact mass. Ordinary people who uh, do not practice meditation, vipassana meditation, they think whatever uh, happens in the body and mind, they just perceive that as one single entity. For them, it's not clear that the mind is one thing and that the body is another thing. They cannot differentiate between these two uh, things. So for example, when they stretch out an arm, the desire to stretch out the arm and then the actual stretching movement is just uh, perceived as one and the same thing. So they cannot see that uh, the intention or the desire to uh, stretch the arm is a mental process and the actual stretching movement of the arm is a physical process. Or with the seeing process, like they cannot differentiate between the eye and the visible form but they just perceive that as one single entity. Or in regard to hearing, like they cannot distinguish that the sound is one thing, namely a physical uh, process, and the hearing, the hearing consciousness, is another thing, namely a mental uh, process. So perceiving the mind and the body as one mass, this is the concept of compactness of mass. And this concept starts to be shattered through the first stage of insight knowledge, which one is able to discern between uh, mind and matter. This first insight knowledge discerns mental and physical phenomena from being uh, different. And so this concept of the compactness of mass uh, is broken through a careful uh, observation of whatever happens at the six sense doors in the body and the mind. And so with uh, sharp mindfulness, good enough concentration, becomes very clear that the intention to bend the arm is one thing and the actual bending movement is another. It becomes clear the intention is a mental thing happening in the mind. This mental impulse that is flashing up very shortly and then when this intention has disappeared then the actual bending movement uh, starts to happen and then one comes to see that this bending movement is not a mental process but that this is a physical process or another way to experience that is when observing the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. So then it becomes clear the rising and falling movement of the abdomen is one thing and the mind that is aware of it is altogether another thing. It becomes clear the movement of the abdomen is a physical thing, a bodily process but that which is aware of that bodily process is an altogether different thing and one comes to see this awareness is 
a mental uh, process. And so, if in this way, um, mental, physical uh, phenomena and processes can be distinguished, then this concept of mental and physical phenomena being one mass or being one uh, compact entity with that it's broken and when it is seen as uh, different uh, phenomena that means that the medicator has reached the first stage uh, of inside knowledge and so then at that stage becomes very clear that the desire or the intention to stretch out the arm cannot is not accomplishing the stretching out uh, movement the intention, the desire um, is a separate uh, process that flares up very momentarily in the mind and after that an altogether new process the stretching movement is happening one sees one thing is happening in the mind the other thing uh, is happening in the body but one also comes to see that there is a causal relationship between these two processes like the intention being the cause for the movement to happen So when each and every phenomenon becomes apparent as a single and separate entity then this concept of the con compactness of mass uh, is broken and with that it starts to become clear that phenomena uh, are happening on their own accord and that this happens based on the necessary causes and conditions and so then it becomes clear that these are just natural processes happening on their own accord that there is no other, no self involved in these processes no other, no self uh, has control over these processes or has no power to exercise any uh, mastery and then the third concept is that of the compactness of function and so this rela uh, relates to the different functions of phenomena so all mental and physical phenomena are different from each other in regard to their functions if one does not um, recognize that mental and physical phenomena have different functions then one wrongly assumes them uh, to be a single entity so in regard to the six kinds of consciousness so they have clearly very different functions like the eye consciousness is able to see visible forms the ear consciousness is able to hear to hear sounds the nose consciousness is able to smell uh, odors the taste consciousness is able to taste different tastes the body consciousness is able to touch to experience tangible things and the mind consciousness is able um, to be aware of mental uh, objects so clearly these diff six kinds of consciousness have uh, different functions but if one does not carefully 
uh, observe these different kinds of consciousness, then people commonly think that consciousness is just one single entity. They cannot differentiate uh, between these six kinds of consciousness. And because this consciousness is seen as a compact single entity, then people think in terms of I, so I see, I hear, I smell, I touch. It's the I that is thinking, it's the I that is seeing, and so on. But let's take the example of seeing. So the eyes, which are a necessary part to be able to see, so the eyes, their function is to make the visible form to be seen. Then the seeing consciousness is able to cognize the visible form able to be aware of that. Although these are different functions, uh, people perceive the eye, the visible form and the eye consciousness that are happening in, in the person as one entity, not being able to differentiate between these uh, different things. or in regard to feelings. Feelings have different functions. So a, a pleasant feeling uh, makes the mind happy, that's its function. And an unpleasant feeling makes the mind withered, that's its function. So there are clearly two different functions with this two different kind of feelings, but if one does not look very carefully, one thinks in terms of feeling as just one uh, thing and is not aware uh, of these different functions. And again, then people think in, rega uh, in regard to the feeling, if they identify the feeling with the I or the self, so then it's I am feeling happy and glad, or then it's the I which is having miserable and depressed. And also in regard to function, again, uh, when we uh, stretch out the arm, we have seen that there is the intention, the desire to stretch out the arm and then the actual stretching movement happens. But if this is not seen in this way, then people uh, just simply identify with this process as I thinking. I am stretching the arm, or I uh, have the desire to stretch out the arm, but it's still, in both uh, instances, it's the I. I want to stretch out the arm. I stretch out the arm. Same thing, the I is the door. So, mental phenomena, physical phenomena, they have all different functions in the Abhidhamma. Uh, they are clearly listed. Each mental phenomena, each physical phenomena is described in regard to its functions and also to regard to its characteristics, its manifestation and its proximate cause. However, if these different functions are not clearly recognized, then 
uh, one has a wrong concept in regard to the uh, function or this concept of the compactness uh, in regard to function. So to break this uh, wrong concept, we have to practice meditation or at least to look very mindfully, very carefully at these different uh, phenomena. So that we come to see that, for example, the function of the eye consciousness or the seeing consciousness is simply to cognize visible forms. The function of the hearing consciousness is simply to cognize uh, sounds and so on. And so when we come to see the different functions of the different phenomena, then with that we can break through this concept of compactness of function. And we also come to see that all these different mental and physical phenomena are actually highly specialized because they can only perform their function, but they are not able to perform another function. Like the seeing consciousness, being able to cognize visible forms, can in no way cognize sounds or tastes. That's impossible for the seeing consciousness. And lastly, the fourth concept, that's the compactness of object. So this is the con concept of compactness that uh, is related to the objects uh, taken by mental phenomena. So mental phenomena, they are different with regard to their objects. And again, this only comes apparent in the meditation practice. Ordinary people uh, are not aware of this. So in regard to objects being different, as you just have seen, the eye consciousness or seeing consciousness uh, can only be aware of visible forms. Hearing consciousness can only uh, be aware of sounds as objects. Uh, smelling consciousness can only take odors or smells as objects. The tongue uh, consciousness can only take tastes as objects. The body consciousness can only take tactile sensations as its objects and the mind consciousness can only take mental phenomena as its objects. So here it's clearly uh, differentiated. Each kind of consciousness can only take uh, a certain kind of object. And so in our meditation practice we can come to see that our seeing consciousness can uh, only take visible forms as objects and the seeing consciousness is different from the consciousness that hears sounds or smells uh, fragrances. And so, with the careful uh, observation of the different kinds of consciousness and what we are aware of, um, we can see that the different kinds of consciousness have 
their specific objects and so is that this concept uh, of the compactness of objects can be broken through. So, uh, to sum up, the understanding of anatta or non-self comes about uh, through observing the individual characteristics of mental and physical phenomena and seeing them either as insusceptible to the exercise of control or seeing them as being unable to exercise any control or seeing them clearly as impermanent and unsatisfactory and therefore come to understand that they are uh, non-self. And so the understanding that sees these different phenomena as non-self or devoid of self in our meditation practice, this is called the empirical understanding of non-self. And so after getting a thorough understanding of the non-self nature empirically in one's meditation, one can also understand that phenomena in the past and phenomena in the future must be of the same nature, that they also must be devoid of self or uh, not being endowed uh, with the self. One can interfere that these two are just natural uh, phenomena happening on their own accord. And so then this understanding of non-self or anatta is called inferential understanding of non-self. And the empirical understanding of non-self starts to arise at the third stage of insight knowledge, the insight knowledge of comprehension, when anicca, dukkha and anatta uh, are discerned. Uh, to understand anatta seems to be the most difficult thing among these three general characteristics. And after the Buddha gave his first discourse to the five ascetics about the Four Noble Truths, they um, attained the first stage of enlightenment, but they did not become fully liberated. It was only after the Buddha's second discourse, namely the Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of non-self, that they made the final breakthrough. And in this um, Anatalakana Sutta, the characteristic of non-self, the Buddha used two ways to make these aesthetics uh, come to understand this non-self nature. And the first way was to go through the five aggregates and pointing out that none of these aggregates can be the self, that none of these aggregates is the atta or endowed with an atta. So there the Buddha said, form, the body, is not non-self. If form, the body, were self, it would not lead to affliction which means, yes, if it were the self, an atta, then, and this atta being something that has control or can exercise mastery, then one could have the f uh, one's form, one could have one's body the way one wanted it to have. So, if the body is sick, then one could immediately make it uh, free from that 
sickness or affliction. And in the same way the Buddha went through the other four aggregates, saying that if it were the self, uh, it would not lead to affliction. And then the second way that the Buddha used to make anatta, non-self, uh, to understand was to use this set of question, questions and answers. We have already encountered these questions and answers, but still, I'll go through them again. <laughs> so the Buddha again asked in regard to all the five aggregates, um, is form, the body, permanent or impermanent? The answer being impermanent. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? answer being suffering or unsatisfactory. And next question, is what is impermanent and suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. The answer being no. So again, sometimes in your meditation practice, when you experience something in the body, in the mind, um, you can apply this set of questions and really ask, is this mine? Is this I am? Is this myself? Look carefully and see what you find. So with this let's conclude this talk. May all of you be able to realize anatta and understand that the body and mind are just natural processes happening on their own accord according to the causes and conditions. May all of you be um, may all of you swiftly become fully liberated and realize Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.